cooking issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from New York City. I happen to be in the Lower East Side because I have the COVID today, so I'm being remote. But the rest of us, well, actually, Nastasia is also, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez is in California, so she's also remote. But the rest of us, <laughs> with the exception of Jackie Molecules, who is always in California. Hey, Jack. Hey. How you doing? Uh, are live on Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center in the heart of New York City. Uh, we're joined, uh, as usual, with uh, Joe Hazen in the booth. How you doing, Joe? Hey, how you guys doing? <laughs> all right, doing all right. Uh, and uh, John, uh, customer service uh, extraordinaire from Booker and Dax. John, how you doing? Doing great, thanks. Yep, PG. And uh, because I'm actually not in the studio, I think like I'm gonna we're gonna do the so you know for those of you that listen to this program before, usually you know we we uh, shoot the breeze for a while and then I introduce the guest. But because like first of all, because like the two guests do kind of such different things, I'm gonna introduce them right now and everyone we're just gonna get together. How's that sound, John? Does it sound like an okay thing? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. So uh, to what? Nothing. Keep going. Today we have, today we have uh, Phoebe Tran, who uh, has a. How you doing, Phoebe? Doing good. Yeah. So you have your. Uh, she has her like uh, her irons in 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 many fires. Uh, so <clears throat> you, I guess, I don't know. What do you go? What do you go by first? So like uh, you, you 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 set up gardens for the Brooklyn Grange all over the city, right? You're like the, you're like a, a garden manager, like in this, in the kind of setup and design side of it. Is it, am I correct in that? Is that one of the things, or do you say that your primary thing is, um, is like uh, the, the night market, uh, festival that you set up the happy family night market festival, or are you more, uh, a more on the kind of babe op side with the, you know, your, your, your project to, um, bring, uh, like hard to find uh, Vietnamese produce and ingredients, cook with them to uh, to our to our plates. Like, which one of those three or are they all this? Are they all together? Um, I typically I feel like it when it comes to cooking issues, I would first and foremost introduce myself as Bebet, uh, my Vietnamese roaming pop up, and then I mean I guess like most of the time I am in the garden, hands in the dirt, um, specifically tending to like edible gardens. All right. So you're growing things that are green. Okay. Let's just be clear. You are growing things that get their energy from the sun and then provide the energy for the rest of the things on earth that, that live. Whereas our other guest, Adam DiMartino doesn't do that, grows things that are, uh, well, they're not parasites there, but they're like they're like us. They have to get their energy from things that have already grown. Mushroom grower uh, with um, small holes. So, like, so why don't you describe? So, this is an interesting concept. So, you correct me if I'm wrong here. You help other people to grow mushrooms. True or false? Well, true. Yeah. So, in other words, you. So, I can go on. I can go on your website, and I can. I can, you know, order a mushroom kit and grow it myself. But like, it seems to me that like what is you're doing a lot of is going into like a Whole Foods, setting up like a like a whole grow. What do you call them? Mini grow state? What do you call them? What's the name of them? It's a it, we call them mini farms. Um, so we sort of do all of the above. Uh, we have uh, all manner of farm. Basically, we put automated mushroom farms that are connected to a network uh, that we sort of run remotely. Uh, inside of grocery stores and uh, restaurants around the country. Uh, and then we also actually have large automated mushroom farms uh, the size of uh, warehouses, like 20, 35,000 square feet, uh, which grow significant quantities of produce for large retailers around the country. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I kind of don't know where to start because, again, <laughs> like... <laughs> Mushrooms, not even plants, not even related to plants, closer to closer to animals than to plants mm. and plants. So what's it like? The other thing I should add is that you two are a couple. So is there ever a problem like the mushroom side versus the plant side? Do you guys get into arguments on this? No. I think our only issue sometimes is that mm. we only t talk about food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, Which I feel like isn't much of an issue on cooking issues. 
Yeah, we. Um... Yeah, right. You, you know who doesn't like talking about food strangely <clears throat> is uh, Nastasia. I don't know whether she was having some technical <laughs> issues. And by the way, we all had thanks for coming in today. Like aside from COVID, uh, New, like a lot of New York City happens to be on lockdown today. So thanks, thanks for making it in. Um, uh, Phoebe, yeah, she hates Phoebe talking about food. Audible. Isn't that bizarre? Uh, and drove in actually. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She drove in right because like a lot of the a lot of the what's it called subways are 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 shut down. Anyway, I don't even know. I'm not going to get into it because I don't even know. I don't even know what's what's going. What's what's happened? All right. So, again, not knowing where to start, I'm going to ask this because uh, when I when I first heard uh, that you guys were coming on, <clears throat> I got your cookbook. Well, the cookbook from Smallhold, mushrooms in the middle. Is that a Malcolm in the middle reference or a monkey in the middle reference or both? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, but I guess it's assuming it's like mushrooms making it into the middle of the plate, right? Yeah, that's the concept. Basically, um, mushrooms uh, are unique in the produce section of the grocery store and in our lives, and that they occupy such a central part of it, although often are overlooked. Right, thirty um, percent of most forest floors are are made up of fungal matter, um, and it mostly goes unseen. The largest organism in the world is a, is a honey mushroom. Um, up in Oregon. And so these are things that we often just don't really talk about, although I feel they're at the forefront of a lot of people's conversations today. Um, and they definitely can occupy the center of the plate like basil can't. So, oh, harshing on basil. Wow. (laughs) Not liking the pesto. Wow. (laughs) Okay then. All right. All right, gauntlet thrown. Uh, so I've heard that that particular uh, honey mushroom, the armillaria out there, is uh, A, not that delicious, and B, even though it's the largest organism in the world, is actually being endangered by people going to pick pieces of it off because of how famous it is. Because I asked wow. on Twitter whether any like myco friend out there would get, and they're like, don't do it. They're like, don't do it. It's also like a serious parasite, that mushroom. Yes. Right? I mean, it, it's wiping. I mean, it depends on what you like better. Do you like Douglas firs or do you like, uh, <laughs> or do you like uh, honey mushrooms, right? I mean, I'm partial to both. They can live together, just yeah. not in one place. <laughs> Ish. Uh, okay. So, but the interesting thing about this cookbook is. First of all, the, the paper is extremely stiff. It's like it's like uh, almost like golden book stiff, like like board paper, and it's relatively short. But the idea of it is is that you're buying it, and it's actually for a nonprofit. The profits of it go to uh, a foundation. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the Fungi Foundation uh, promotes uh, biodiversity and mushroom awareness. Um, honestly, it's it's one of the cooler uh, organizations out there in the mushroom world right now. Um, I'd give uh, Juliana over there a lot of credit for really pushing that agenda and making people aware of just how important mushrooms are, not just to, you know, humans, but to the planet. Uh, and honestly, that's sort of the mission of, of Smallhold as well. Um, we really want to use or sorry, to facilitate knowledge around mushrooms in the hopes that people will pay more attention to their natural environment as a result of it. So I noticed in the book that uh, there was a little bit of a hate down on the common button mushroom. (laughs) And I understand why there needs to be a little bit of a hate down on the common button mushroom. But come on, they are delicious. Do you not find that they are also delicious? If they were rare, how expensive would they be? So expensive if they were rare. No? Well, in uh, in Korea, they are kind of rare because of uh, a manure shortage, right? They don't have the right kind of manure to grow buttons on, and uh, they're significantly more expensive, like upwards of $10 a pound, I think. Um, but I'll, I'll just say, like... And do people like them there as a result of them? Where? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're, they eat them, and they like them, but yeah, I eat them, and I like them. I'm not anti-button mushroom, I'm just pro all other mushrooms. I have to say, though, I feel like I haven't had a white button mushroom in a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Phoebe, that checks out, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine if like you if you went if you went like brought home like a standard 10 ounce pack? So people, in case you 
and I'm going to ask this later when it comes to like the economics of this. The standard unit of of button mushroom in the United States is a 10 ounce uh, <clears throat> packet in made of cardboard with perforated plastic over it that's been extremely highly designed to keep those things in decent shape for a while. Anyway, so that's if you're thinking supermarket mushroom, it's that. That's 10 ounces of mushroom, right? Uh, yeah, so I can imagine, like, so, so Phoebe, so are you actually jonesing for some button mushrooms now then? I mean, I definitely, I feel like the last time I've used it, it was for this like vegan version of a, di a Vietnamese dish called bon rio that my mom makes. And you like have to use white button mushrooms because she like blends it with like a slurry of, of other mushrooms, but mainly white button mushrooms and an egg. And then she sort of like quenelles it and like drops it into a boiling soup so that it like acts as this like vegan version of like a crab pork cloud. <laughs> and like you couldn't do that you couldn't make that recipe with any other sort of like chewier mushroom like oyster mushrooms or trumpet or whatever like it has to be white mushroom button mushrooms huh huh what texture are they when they drop like straight dumpling texture like what like what are we look like a yeah more like, a like mousse, melt like a in your mouth fish like mousse super texture? yeah like but not like fish mousse would be a little bit like bouncier I feel like yeah, they're pretty like like very light, like kind of like fall apart in your mouth texture. Ooh, give me that name again. I, get, I guarantee you, people are going to look this up. What the, is it? Well, you can't really find the dish anywhere else because she's made her own version of it. But the but the meat version is called bun rieu, b u n r i e u. The rieu word means. But the mushroom the, version. The mushroom. I mean, the mushroom version. I guess would still be like a rieu. Rieu meaning like. Traditionally in, in Vietnamese cuisine, the, the dish is cooked by pounding crab and then and then sort of boiling that and then the what what floats up is is the rio. And then there's like an Americanized version, which is like crab and pork and lots of eggs. And then there's the vegan version, which is the white button mushroom with lots of egg. But that's that's your that's your mom's only. That's a family thing. It is. Yeah. Where is the Bun Ryu? Where does that, yeah. what part of Vietnam does that come from? Uh, Southern, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely Southern. Yeah. Which is where your mom comes from. Yeah. yeah. That was, uh, that was John's favorite place in his culinary travels. I've never had the pleasure of going. And all my travels. And I feel my like. My favorite country. I feel like I have no, I feel like I have like almost zero knowledge on, it's pathetic, on Vietnamese uh, food. In fact, I didn't realize how huge. Vietnam, like physically how many people were there until I looked it up last week, like how big it is. It's like almost 200 million people there, right? It's like, isn't it? Or is it one, one it's, it's huge country, much huger than I thought. Um, and like my lack of knowledge is pathetic. I went and looked up last week, like, like our, my particular and people my age in the United States, white folks, uh, like our knowledge of different Asian cuisines versus how many people are in that country. And like there are like some huge, huge gaps. I mean, obviously Philippines, huge. Like we know so little compared to how giant that country is, you know. But I was kind of shocked mm -hmm. also at, you know, Vietnam besides the stuff that we all, you know, know and, and, and eat here in New York on the regular. Would you say that's a, a problem in a lot of places, New York specifically? I mean, like I know that there's huge diasporas down south. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I actually um, grew up in California. Uh, but yeah, I grew up in Southern California. There's a, a little part of Garden Grove in Southern California called Little Saigon, where a lot of uh, Vietnamese immigrants settled, including my parents after the war. Um, I would say there's like there's always like these pockets, but I would say that in New York in particular, there's definitely I don't know, like apparently there's like a really like small Vietnamese community up in the Bronx, but I feel like because there aren't very many Vietnamese immigrants or like a hub of Vietnamese immigrants here, um, it's definitely reflected in like the the options for v good Vietnamese food in New York City. Ninety-seven million, though ninety, not one hundred ninety, but still huge. One hundred million <laughs> people is a lot of people. A lot, a lot of people. Uh, all right, so. Yeah, and so in John, you know who else? John, 
uh, said it was w- one of their all-time best. And he again, I focused mainly on food. Was uh, Bobby Murphy, bartender at uh, uh, beverage director at uh, Existing Conditions. Yeah. He spent like uh, a month and a half, two months there, just going around eating his way through. And everyone who goes says that the food is like life-changing. So, but but so I don't good. know. You know, Would you say that it's life-changing, John? I don't know. Was, yeah, I mean, some, seeing some of those things and tasting some of them were, yeah, amazing. I mean, it's largely the reason why I started farming, because I was cooking before I was farming. Okay. And I don't know. I think I just, like, realized how much, how many ingredients we were lacking, in particular, like, herbs mm. we were lacking, um, specifically in New York. Like, you know, there's something to be said about like the fact that I can only go to one grocery store in Chinatown that's closed on Thursdays. It's tiny. It's called Tan Tin Hung. And that's the only place that you can get like a selection of herbs. But they, you know, it's still very limited. It's maybe like five different herbs that you can only find there. Well, which streets, which streets that on? It's on Bowery and Grand. Unless you don't want to call it out. What? It's on, oh, no, yeah, I'm, it's on I'm all for all right. promoting them. Yeah. One twenty one Bowery. That's uh wait, you say Bowery and Grand? That's yeah. my neighborhood. How have I not gone there? Bowery and Grand? Yeah, Bowery and Grand. There were there I used mean, to like, be another one COVID, called Ken Hing right on Grand and that closed during the pandemic. Uh, like a lot of chance. Uh, now is it a problem in New York growing these things because like our weather's not that good? No, I mean in New York we actually have like a subtropical climate in the summertime so as long as you're starting things uh sort of like earlier on like indoors in a greenhouse then i mean tropical varieties can thrive in the summer unless people um steal your starts (laughs) somebody stole phoebe's starts this morning literally there's a plant thief come on (laughs) from where like where do they like they jump into your area like they jump into your private area no, no. I mean, we have a shared sort of storage floor, and I left it on the floor while I was grabbing some stuff, but it actually got returned. Oh. Yeah. Uh, someone's boss got really upset, and they claimed that they thought it was trash. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know what? You know what? You know what? Having dealt with people like that who are like, like, oh, oh my God, I can imagine it. Like, they just want to be jerks, and they're like, it's not exactly the way I want. So they just throw it all out to make a point, but they don't really, cause they know they can't do it. So they save it and then they give it back to you. <laughs> I know this kind of person. I hate this kind of person. <laughs> I know and hate this kind of person. If it's the kind of person I'm assuming it is, you think, am I right here? Or am I barking up the wrong tree? I mean, they, it definitely wasn't trash. <laughs> they, they took the tray of plants inside of a crate and left the crate. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know people like this. Uh, unpleasant, unpleasant people. So what are the, what are the herbs that you think could like be like in terms of the the average like person like myself, like super slam dunks, like super slam dunk herbs that we don't already know about? Are you familiar with a rice paddy herb? I mean, I, I, slightly. I don't know where I can buy it, man. I know what it is. Uh, you know, I know what it tastes like, but yeah, I don't know where to buy it. But uh, yeah, because anyone likes spicy and, and sour, right? I mean, so. It's not really sour. It actually tartish, smells a not, lot you know, like citrusy, human. Citrusy, like. It smells like, it smells like human. It's, uh, you can definitely get it at Tan Tin Hung and it's, it's traditionally used for uh, a Vietnamese uh, sweet and sour soup called Gan Jua. It's like used as a garnish, but like, I mean, I feel like I had, I had a recent pop-up at my, my friend's pop-up, a pop-up and a pop-up, Hasdak <laughs> Beat in, uh, on Forsyth. They just had their last, uh, pop-up <laughs> <laughs> last weekend. And, uh, they were using it in this like, sort of like raw fish, uh, salad, um, that we made like a crudo salad and it was so good. And I've been obsessed with it ever since. Um, how, um, how, uh, what's it called? How indestructible is it? How fragile is it? Oh, it's not. I've it's never pretty cooked sturdy. With it or like, ha- I've just had it served to me. It's, it's pretty, sturdy? it's pretty sturdy. Yeah. I mean, it's meant to be served cooked. Um, yeah. Have you had a uh, fish mint? That is crazy. I haven't. I have not had it. 
but I am intrigued by the idea of a mint that has a fishy aroma. Yeah. Apparently, there's also um, a mushroom herb uh, mm -hmm. that's, that tastes like mushrooms. That's not Vietnamese, but huh. I did order I, do, I did order well, a plant can... on Etsy to see our I world's mean, That would be an interesting, uh, interesting cross-pollination there, right? Uh, an herb is, so, like, but talking about the fish mint, like, like, does it really smell like fish? Yes. John can it's, attest. Yeah, it is. It was mind-boggling the first time I, I encountered it. I feel like it's the like what kind of fish? Like what do you mean by fish? Like dried fish? No. Like ammonia? Like a a white fish? Yeah, I don't know. It just it, I felt like when I was smelling it, I, it was like, like cod. Not quite. I don't know, but Fishier. it was yeah. I would say like tilapia is closer. Or yeah. catfish. Oh. Catfish, I'd say. Yeah, I don't know, but it was like it was clean smelling. I don't know. It was just it was really. I don't know, it was like putting your face in a bowl of like fish fumet for me, like minus the, the acidity of the wine, but it was just like, it was crazy. Yeah. So is it used mainly in fish preps then, or do they, is it opposite land where they use it in non-fish preps? They're like, what? <laughs> and does the fish smell stay when it's cooked? Uh, it's not typical. So the, the fish mints in particular is not typically cooked. It's served fresh on like an herb plate with many other herbs. So it's meant to be paired with other herbs like perilla and mint and uh, I don't know lettuces and and sorrel. But like the the herb itself, I don't know. Like it's 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 meant to be it's meant to be paired. It's it's meant to eat be eaten fresh with like you know other like like fried things or soupy things. You could top it in a soup, and then in that sense, it would be cooked. I think that's like a common misconception for people who go out to eat, you know, Vietnamese in America, is that herbs are sort of a, a side part of the meal, an accoutrement. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're eating Vietnamese food, it's an integral part of the meal, right? You mix, you, you have your herbs as a part of that meal, every meal. It comes um, in a giant bowl right next to your dish. Yeah. I mean, it is meant to be copiously added to what you're eating. It's great. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, and in Vietnam, they also use what I know of here in the Latin markets as culantro, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. The, 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 the cilantro tasting thing that's kind of yep. long and looks like a long tongue. Yep. So What's it called there? Uh, nga, um. Yeah. I don't really like that one that much. I gotta be honest. I would always rather have cilantro. What about you? Like, what do you guys think? Well, John, what do you think? Are you like, are you a Coulantro fan or do you like, would you always, in other words, I understand that everybody needs different things, but I'm saying if someone, if, if, if I had to reach for to cook with cilantro or Coulantro, I would always grab this cilantro. Am mm -hmm. I just being an, a, a butthead here? Probably. Probably. I don't know. I would, I feel like I would also grab cilantro, but that's because of my lack of familiarity with the Coulantro. Even though I've had it a bunch of times, I still, I don't know. I think it's more, I think the way that you, you think remember? about it is less like interchangeably with other herbs and more like in combination. Also, it's nga guy, not nga um. Just thought I'd correct myself. Huh. Um, do you remember like, oh, I don't want to, I don't know, like eight years ago when everyone was like, delphinium's the new thing because it's like cilantro light? Also, I would never rather grab that. Would you? Would you ever be like, I mean, I, I like it, it's great, but. Like, I don't, I mean, maybe it's just because I grew up eating so much cilantro <laughs> that to me, like, I mean, I just, I go through so much cilantro in my house. Maybe that's it. The things that are similar to it, but not it. I'm always like, it's fine. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's a mental problem. I think I'm having a mental problem. And I, as I'm speaking, I'm realizing that I need to address it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. Uh, I need to address my my uh, lack of uh, willingness to try other cilantro-like products because I'm happy with other basils and other mints. I love trying like different kinds of uh, basil and mint relatives. I mean, they're all relatives, but anyway. Uh, you know what, Dave? How about we... Can I get that at that place in... Uh... Go for it. Ask your question. What? No, no. Ask your question and then I'll, I'll interject. Can we, get, can we get the fish mint at that place on Bowery and Grand? Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh... As soon as I'm not quarantined, I'm going to go there. As awesome. soon as I'm not quarantined. Like, um, what were you saying, John? How about we do a quick commercial break? 
Yeah. All right. Okay. We'll be right back with more cooking issues. Today's episode brought to you by Aura King Salmon, everybody's favorite fish. And today we have Michael Fabro from Aura King Salmon to talk to us more about how it's uh, raised and bred. So I haven't really thought about this, but when you're raising wheat, you're raising just like a kind of a, like a bunch of clones, right? Or, you know, a specific variety, not a lot of uh, diversity. So how do you make sure that there's going to be enough diversity when you're, when you're raising these salmon? So one thing that's different about us is we have our own hatchery. So we're not buying eggs. And this is traditional husbandry. This is selective breeding. Sometimes I'll use the analogy. It's like, it's like raising thoroughbreds. You know, some of the traits we look for are fat content or skin color, flesh color. And there's a lot of science behind it. You know, we have well over 200,000 individual broodstock salmon in our database that they can go to and look at the characteristics of each one. We have well over 100 family groups, so we're able to ensure enough genetic diversity and avoid potential issues with inbreeding. So this is a science and an art of traditional husbandry, and it's really critical. Like Controlling your own breeding and hatchery really helps you develop a, a very unique salmon in the end. Awesome. Or a king salmon, everybody's favorite fish. And we're back. Uh, oh, wait, before we go uh, in, I just wanted to say this. So Stuart Fox, who uh, uh, helped us uh, finishing up the uh, exhibition for opening uh, African slash American, making uh, the nation's table at uh, the Africa Center with Museum of Food and Drink. So he's working on a, a project. So I'm just going to read a little promo that we thought might be good for particularly uh, people who li listen to us who are in New York, who are in the uh, hospitality business. As restaurants around New York City finally be get back, uh, begin to get back on their feet, over a million of our neighbors are still wondering where their next meal will come from. The North Brooklyn Mutual Aid Society maintains free distribution sites around Williamsburg, Williamsburg and Greenpoint, and it needs your help keeping people fed. If you are a cook, chef, restaurant, or bar owner, or if you are a grocery or bodega, bodega who would like to provide space, material support, technical capacity, or food in support of ready-made meals to the local free distribution sites, please contact the North uh, Brooklyn Mutual Aid Free Fridge Program team at greenpointhelpers at gmail.com. That's greenpointhelpers at gmail.com. And thank you for helping us to make sure none of our neighbors have to go hungry. And their website is uh, northbrooklynmutualaid.org as well. And I'm sorry, Stuart, that I, I, I can't give it my usual gusto, but the COVID has taken me down to about, I would say 70% of my normal scream factor. I only got about 70% of myself here. So I apologize. I couldn't give it the normal screamorama. But was that all right, John? Was I all right with that? That was great. And if anyone missed any of that, just feel free to reach out to me on any of the socials or email or anything like that, and we can talk more about it. Yeah, if you are a, if you are a food supplier and you have food and or time and want to help making ready-made meals for people to pick up at local distribution points in Brooklyn where there's plenty of people who, who don't have enough food to eat, reach out. Yep. Right? Right. And then one more thing, too, that we forgot to mention at the top. Uh, if you want to call in, call 917-410-1507. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Now, Phoebe, I want to get back to this because I had a question. So you're also, you do a, a festival once a year. Are you still, are you continuing or did, did, did the pandemic uh, do damage to the, to the, uh, to the happy family? Yeah, we actually, uh, so I actually stepped away from the project in 2020 when I started farming. Um, and also, yeah, uh, like we weren't allowed to do like 2000 plus people per person, uh, festivals anymore. So yeah, we pivoted, they pivoted to mm -hmm. online programming. Um, and supposedly another happy family night market festival is supposed to be happening either this year or next year. Um, yeah. Well, you had a lot of good people doing it, like a lot of people, like even from my neighborhood, like Kopi Tiam and all those guys, mm -hmm. um, a lot of really good people at it. Was, is, is it named after Happy Family, the dish? It is. It is. And actually, uh, okay. it was so inspired like, by the by MoFAD's um, uh, last exhibition. Oh, Chow? Chow. That's so yep. nice. Mm -hmm. That's nice. great. I love that exhibition. Um uh, actually, John, you came on to MoFad during Chow, right? During during the making of Chow, I did. Yeah, a year after it opened, I started in 2017 at MoFad. Were you there at the same time? Phoebe? Yeah, that. Uh, I think I might have been. With yeah, other, with other John. 
With John when Hutt. John Hutt was there. Yeah, it was yeah. Like, yeah. John yeah, the Hutt. So we yeah. must have must yeah. have John the Hutt. Yeah, John the Hutt uh is like somewhere like being himself in, in Spain Barcelona, right now. Yeah. yeah. But for those of you who don't know, that was the he was the Mofad chef. And uh he was the one who was using that we used we had to have a uh uh, an induction walk there, which is why everyone who hates on induction walks is like, you know, I don't know if you've used this hardcore induction walk because this induction walk, it would get like cherry red. It was crazy. And first of all, like you guys, when like at the beginning of that exhibition, were doing the craziest, like fermenting, like so many crazy distilling illegal stuff there. It was kind of a fun mm -hmm. time, you know? Yeah, I think John, John just I aspired to just always have a fermentation kitchen wherever he was. He also had yeah. a pretty eclectic yeah. knife, knife collection. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. A lot. But I remember I went well, to go and visit and an him. an eclectic cutting board collection. Yeah. I went oh, to go visit yeah. him at this um, Australian cafe that he was also working at at the yeah. time. And he took me downstairs to the fermentation kitchen that he had set up down uh, yeah, so I guess they they couldn't there. they couldn't afford to hire him. So part of his uh, agreement with them was that they would he would be able to set up a fermentation kitchen downstairs. Yeah, mm, that checks out. He's not so much with uh, uh, rules. He's not so much with rules. Doesn't like them. <laughs> Doesn't enjoy rules. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. His latest. Uh, his latest. So the happy family. What? <laughs> Well, his latest paper, I, I think that in, in video uh, was I thought it was. I'm proofreading that paper now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, fer fermenting anti-capitalism. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that checks out. Uh, that checks out. Uh, so, happy family. I have to say, this is how this is how demented I am. Like I always thought it was a perverse. So. Happy Family is a dish that has like a lot of different meats in it. For those of you that have never heard of Happy Family, right? Got a lot of different meats in it. And I always thought that someone was going into like a barn with a machete and just wiping out all of the animals that were in the barn and making it into this one dish. And so it was like a, you know, like kind of like a demented Happy Family. In other words, just like some sort of Manson family <laughs> massacre That's of all of these animals to make the one dish. <laughs> yeah. And then just today, just today when I was looking over the stuff, I was like, oh, it's probably that your family is happy because you can serve them all of these meat. <laughs> it's not a sarcastic that the animals must be happy. And I always thought, you know what I mean? That just goes to show where my brain goes. For years I've been thinking this. Mm. I mean, it's a really yeah, kitchen yeah. sink dish, right? I'm pretty like, sure it's that you're... Yeah. I think yeah, everyone's happy when have, they can get a like, taste of little, a little bit of everything. Mm, yeah, but it's like the maximum number of different kinds of animals killed for one dish of anything <laughs> I can think of off the top of my head. Who, you know who, what I'm saying? Who is that? It's, it's the maximum carnage. What? There, there was a it was a, a a king in the Hue dynasty who had uh, people scour the scour all of Vietnam and the lands beyond for the most random uh, stuff he could they could find and bring it back to them him and then they would combine it into these weird sculptures. It's it's super super esoteric. Yeah, there's a the royal cuisine of of Hue cooking. Um, I did like a a sort of like research post on it on my Instagram, and it was a it was a it was like a big feast that featured all these like exotic animals that were caught by these knights in Vietnam that would like bring them back, and it was like bear claw and orangutan brain and just like. You know, really crazy. <laughs> but then combined into sculptural food pieces with like pig snouts and tails. Um, I mean, I kind of want to see that. I don't want any <laughs> orangutans killed, but I kind of want to see it, you know? Um, like, a, like a real life arcing boldo but with animals instead of vegetables, huh? <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so I found the, I found the yeah. post. So each of the emperor's meals consisted of 35 to 50 dishes prepared by a team of 50 people who made up the Tung Tian Doi, a kitchen cabinet that oversaw the sourcing, preparation, cooking customs, ceremonies, and medicinal balance of each dish. Um, each meal needed to include eight auspicious dishes that were believed to bring health and longevity to the emperors. 
uh, peacock spring rolls, phoenix rolls, bird's nest, rhino skin, bear paw, deer tendon, orangutan lips, and elephant leg meat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Talk about kitchen sink. But keep going. Is there more? I mean, like, uh, that's already... That's already a conservationist nightmare right there. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the statement was these dishes were centered around exotic and now endangered beets, elaborately displayed as works of art and passed on from generation to generation. So now there's there's one woman uh, who lives in Hue that has a, a sort of like uh, school that she maintains to carry on this like tradition of, of Hue cuisine and it's not just those like eight auspicious dishes it's like the entire sort of like process of like carving these elaborate sort of like vegetables and and, and putting them together here i'll show i'll show john oh wow now, that's wild i have heard that bear paw is actually delicious i have heard this i've only eaten bear once and it tasted terrible now i cooked it and i don't know how to cook bear so it could be on me also like it's, it was an old bear. I had a very, very old bear, but uh, I don't know. Where did you get? I had an enough old bear? different people tell me that bear. T- Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, there used to be this guy out of Chicago who sold uh, who sold kind of uh, exotic meats. And uh, when I was back at the French Culinary Institute, we bought some stuff from him because on his website. He made it seem like everything was le- legitimately sourced, right? Like legitimately, like not just legal, but like you know, uh, you know, not amoral, right? And uh, <clears throat> I found out later that uh, that wasn't the case. That he was doing like a lot of really bad uh, stuff, uh, and so we didn't order from him anymore. So bear was one of the things that. Uh, that that we got. You know what the worst was though? Raccoon. That tasted oh, terrible. I mean, it was a greasy, <laughs> tough, little, terrible. I feel like raccoon. The winner, like, maybe yak. in a pinch. Yak. I, I don't know about choosing to eat uh, rac. I know what they eat. How'd you prepare it? Uh, we low temped all of it just to see like kind of like because and we tried to keep it as neutral as possible like we weren't saucing it i don't want to want to i don't even know what i don't need i know what a what a good sauce tastes like i want to know what the meats tasted like right so we basically just uh low temp them for a long time and then just tried to like flash them off to you know get a little uh color on the on the outside and yeah the raccoon was no part of it i liked bear too uh the yak delicious delicious i would i would travel to eat good yak or yeah, high yeah. altitude yak but yak's I, milk yak as well i have not had yak's milk i've had yak's milk cheese i've never had yak's milk but yeah but yak itself that's a good product but uh but the bear i'm willing to try the, the bear again i've heard that the bear from hokkaido is like the bear to have like if you want to go like like very northern you know, part of Japan that Hokkaido's got the bear to beat. If you want like the best quality bear, not that I'm saying you should go to Hokkaido and kill a bear. I'm not <laughs> saying that at all. Sounds dangerous. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. All right. So, so uh, back to mushrooms for a second before I get to the Patreon questions, because I don't want to miss them before, before we go. Mm-hmm. Adam, have you ever been, and I know that you're not, I know specifically that you aren't interested or are part of the mainstream mushroom industry, but I kind of have to ask, have you been to the mushroom festival in Kennett square? Yes. It's very wholesome. I have been wanting to go for a number of years. Years. I've been wanting to get the t-shirts years. (laughs) Should I go to the Kennett square mushroom festival? Um, I would say that's, that's a hard yes. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's similar to, a lot of towns who have a produce or something that comes from them, like we have an apple festival uh, in my parents' town up in Connecticut. Um, it's it's similar to that, uh, although uh, a lot more deep fried mushrooms, lots of fried mushroom products. Yeah, there's also another mushroom festival. Did you in... did you enter the contest? Did you enter the deep fried mushroom eating contest? No, no, <laughs> you know about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean we're oh, kind yeah. of uh, we're friends with a lot of the growers down there. Um, 
it's not not a bad place to be and mushrooms are great the people who grow mushrooms are all uh it's all one big kind of family in kennett uh, everybody like uh, the shipper is somebody's cousin who knows bob who started a mushroom farm he used to work for john who started another mushroom farm uh it's a very it's a very sort of awesome part of the country i think like 70 percent of the mushrooms in the country come from there yeah, it's bizarre. It's huge, right? And so, like, what you know, one of the things I thought was interesting is that, um, you know, you were pointing out like, but but button mushrooms are rare, and but but seventy percent of all of the mushrooms in the United States come from there, no matter what the variety is. Yeah, all from like, this town that no this area that no one's heard of. How the hell did that happen? Well, the um, I think I forget which wave of Italian immigration it was, but basically in Philadelphia, which is our first city, um, the main mode of transportation and a lot of you know, the, the business was focused around livestock and horses, uh, and the byproduct of having, you know, cows and horses, uh, is a lot of manure. And that's actually a business if you grow mushrooms, uh, and, you know, Italians grew mushrooms on that manure, uh, when they emigrated to the United States. Uh, and that's how the business sort of started and it grew from there. Um, you know, fast forward about a century and a half, uh, and you have uh, a highly industrialized mushroom you know, business, uh, you know, stratify with shipping and logistics integrated. And, uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty massive thing. So it's basically become essentially, uh, the, the, the iceberg lettuce of the mushroom world. Uh, so I'm not, again, it's like button mushrooms are good. I like iceberg lettuce too. I just, uh, wouldn't want to only eat yeah, iceberg crunchy. lettuce. Yeah. It has a great texture mushroom again on pizza, button mm. mushrooms are, are awesome. Yeah. Um, but there's a world of mushrooms out there besides buttons that most Americans, you know, not in Vietnam, right? There's, there's a lot of different kinds of mushrooms uh, that are not, you know, misconstrued with meat textures. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is uh, when people call something that has, uh, you know, mushrooms in it plant-based or they compare it to meat. Um, I think that there's a, there's a world of mushrooms out there besides button mushrooms. It's a whole kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Whole kingdom. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, just a point of point of question. What's the difference? Is there a difference? And when do you use it? You, you use trumpet. Is that the same as what I call King Oyster? Like the, mm-hmm. like the Royal trumpet? Is it the same? Or are they slightly different? Yeah. And that, that's correct. They're the same mushroom. Uh, and actually, uh, buttons and portabellas, right. And cremini are the same mushrooms as well. There's one, that's one mushroom, um, just at different stages of maturity uh, and baby bellas. Um, And so they've just been sort of chopping up button mushrooms for, again, like a century. Um, When, if you make a comparison, just again, to greens, uh, we saw kale, right? Kale hit the grocery stores in you know, late eighties, early nineties. And it was sort of the, the indicator species in a way for a wider organic movement that was opening up with like whole foods. Uh, and I think we saw that with shiitakes that brought the word umami to our lexicon in, in America. Although I feel like there was a bit of a missed opportunity there to sort of promote mushrooms on a larger way, in a larger way. Yeah. Well, I mean, shiitakes, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but unlike, uh, I looked it up. I had to do some writing the other day. Uh, actually, it was months ago now. Sorry, the other day. Uh, I think button mushrooms worldwide are are only fifth in terms of how many are, are produced, and shiitakes mm-hmm. are number one. Yeah, like China. number one worldwide. China has. They grow them all. They grow. It million pound harvests of shiitakes uh, per farm. Like it's not. It's a. It's a massive industry. The fact that we sort of missed that is still. I as somebody who's been working in the industry for a minute. Uh, it's still surprising. Like, how, how do we miss mushrooms? Now, uh, on shiitakes for a second. Mm. Uh, with, with shiitakes, now that they can grow them if they want to in humidity-controlled environments and temperature-controlled environments, right? They're no longer beholden to what's going on. They can make the flower-style shiitakes whenever they want now, Right. Do you think that those ones that are grown that way that aren't natural, like the flower top or whatever, whatever you want to call them, you can tell me what you prefer to call them on the shiitake. Do you really think that they taste any better? Um, I mean, honestly, I've had some mind blowing shiitakes in Seoul and I was actually supposed to fly to China in March of 2020. In February, I got a call from my fixer 
uh, like, you shouldn't come here. Um, and so I'm, I'm really bummed that I got to miss that or had to miss that. But, uh, yeah, like they're the concept of like a gift mushroom with that's pristine and has been grown in the optimal conditions and selected, uh, is very real. And I feel like if not just a psychosomatic sort of sort of impression of them, giving them their flavor is, is true. I, I do feel like there's techniques that growers can use to make shiitakes grow slower and take nutrients uh, in different ways that add flavor uh, and uh, visual appeal that go back millennia. And I don't think we should discount that from, from the shiitake. And also there's genetics, right? And so, and growing them outside uh, in a specific way, especially there's a farmer in Japan uh, whose uh, output is actually changing due to climate change. Um, but he has been farming mushrooms in this same patch of forest in the same style, dunking them in the same pond for, you know, generations. They have been farming them for generations. Uh, and people swear by those. So I would, I would say, yeah. Because shiitakes are grown on 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 wood, right? Plugged wood, and then you have to get them wet before they start to fruit. Is that how it works? Why can you why can you run through? I know that they're going to cut us off pretty soon, but can you run through the the process? Kakoda asked, would love to hear Adam talk about the underground mycelium network, but they're not all underground. Like some of these things are grown on different kinds of substrates. Can you can you just run through that really quickly? Yeah, I mean more more to mushrooms in general and and how they're farmed. Uh, Indoors, I guess there's like there's outdoor farming and there's indoor farming. Outdoor farming is a little bit bit of a, it's still a lift. Like it, it, technically, it's like hard to do, uh, but indoor farming, you're you're managing the climate uh, all the time. And so, uh, with blocks of mushrooms, what you're doing, we're primarily uh, growing decomposers, right? So uh, they're decomposing wood and turning that into it's it's their food. Uh, and so you'll you'll start off with sawdust and agricultural waste product. Mushrooms grow on waste streams. Uh, or at least the ones that we grow, those uh, mushrooms uh, take the, you'll take the substrate, uh, the sawdust as it were, and put that in an autoclave, which is a pressure vessel. Uh, and that pressure vessel is the size of a submarine usually. Uh, and you put it in 500 pound racks uh, and then you cook it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of going quickly here because I know we have time. Um, you cook it and you kill everything else that could be competitive uh, with the mushroom that you want to grow on that substrate. So any bacteria, right? Any pathogenic stuff. Uh, and then you add your spawn, which has been genetically selected, uh, you know, over time uh, to that substrate, let it colonize in a plastic bag. Um, and uh, that takes, you know, two to four weeks, depending on the mushroom and a few other factors. Uh, and then you enter the fruiting cycle, at which point you expose that uh, substrate, you open the bag uh, the high heat uh, bag, it's, it's able to be to withstand the, the temperatures of an autoclave. Uh, and then you open that and expose that substrate and the fungus to oxygen and you change the lighting and it triggers the fruiting process. Uh, and then from there, it's about another generally two to four weeks, but you know, some mushrooms take longer and some mushrooms are shorter. The key to all of it is, is sterility indoors. So when I, if you go on, if you go on your website and you buy one of the mushroom kits and right now you have, well, you have two different ones, right? That you're selling right now. Lion's Mane and Blue Oyster. Oh yeah. Nice. I like Lion's Mane. So now it, it says delivers in two to three weeks. Is that because you're just like, it's just like you can't catch up or is it because you want them to be exactly the way they need to be when they show up so that they're ready to rock and roll when they hit, when they hit the, your doorstep? You mean two weeks to fruit? No, I, well, it's it, like your shipping was two two weeks uh, out on the on the thing last time I checked. Um, you know, to be completely honest, uh, it's a living product, and we kind of have to grow it. Uh, to, <laughs> if we have a bunch of uh, fruiting blocks sitting around, they're going to keep growing, and we'll have a lot of wasted products. So we we give ourselves a bit of a lead time to make sure that the product is ready to grow out uh, before it hits yeah hits the doorstep. And then when you cut it open, right, you that have seems mushrooms. like a benefit to me. You're not. Right, you're not you're not selling BS. That's like either like too too young or too old. Like you're waiting to get the order. You're getting it primed just right, and when it shows up, it's the it's the right way. Yeah, I bought one not from you guys. I bought one once okay. from a place in uh, on the West Coast, 
and I brought it home and it did not grow at all. Like it got parasitized by something else. I don't know what the hell happened. Uh, I forget what kind of mushroom it was. This was over a decade ago. Okay. And uh, I don't know whether it, I, I tried to not let it dry. I don't know what the, he- what the hell happened. But my question is, if I get, if I go and I buy one of the blocks that you have, first of all, how, mu- how many mushrooms am I going to get out of one of these blocks that I get from you? One. And two, will you help the person try to make sure that it's not going to go south on them like it did for me that time? Uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're pretty active with customer support and especially on Instagram uh, and our email. Um, I actually, my phone number was the main phone number for, for a couple of years. And I had like, it was, we got featured in a couple of uh, like news, news outlets. Like, and after that, I, I had to change my, my phone number because everybody kept calling. Us yeah, don't grow. do that. But we definitely are yeah, very active in answering them. Um, and yeah, I mean, honestly, like you're going to get, um, Phoebe's mom actually is crazy. Uh, she obviously gets the hookup, uh, and, uh, has set up a mini mushroom farm of her. She constructed a mushroom farm in her house. Uh, and now gets, she gets like the best biological efficiency off of those blocks that I've seen pretty much anybody get with, uh, anywhere from two to five pounds, uh, sometimes more off of a block. So you're getting two to two to five pounds off of a block over the course of how long? Uh, she'll do multiple flushes, which a flush is, um, you know, every time a mushroom fruits off the block. And so, uh, every harvest basically. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, she'll, she'll do that over a period of basically four weeks, I think. All right. So an easily, a very easily consumable quantity of mushrooms. Yeah, actually, I mean, um, who was it? Stephanie, Stephanie Bardeen, uh, who, uh, is a a mutual friend of Phoebe and I's, uh, actually just, uh, texted me. Um, she got, I think it was like seven or eight pounds off of a couple blocks. Uh, and now that actually becomes an issue because then all of a sudden you have all these mushrooms and you gotta, you basically eat mushrooms for, I mean, not that I'm opposed to it. I just, People get overwhelmed sometimes, so right, be right. prepared. Dave, fire off those last two questions. Now, I noticed some of the things. So, some of the things that you're selling, right? Uh, with, with, that you're creating, like the actual like grow units, which this uh, uh-huh. goes. And Monty Zakowski wanted to know what kind of investment does it take to set up a facility? How do you figure out what the earning potential is, and can it work in a small community with tens of thousands of people in it? Right. Uh-huh. I noticed that like the the blocks that you're using, you have is that UV light to stop like nasties from growing on this stuff, or like what is that? Like they're kind of glowing that kind of bluish color. Yeah, there's two. Uh, well, so there's two kinds of facilities. I think it, I'm not sure, but the the question asker might be referring to our larger facilities. So, for instance, we're opening one in LA in two weeks, uh, downtown LA, uh, and that's like a thirty-five thousand square foot facility, and that's like many millions of dollars. Uh, and then the the home, well, we don't have a home unit, but a unit for a restaurant or a grocery store, you know, you're talking about anywhere, depending on the modifications, uh, between ten and, and thirty thousand uh, dollars. And then, but it yields a significant output, and so it is viable for a lot of people to make a business out of it. That was actually the original intention for the business was to set up. Uh, we set, had a shipping container on North Brooklyn Farms uh, as a proof of concept that we would be able to uh, put modular farms on other farmers land to provide them with alternate sources of revenue. So there is a business model there for people who want to start up small farms and I'm happy to engage them if you want to give my info out. So, so let's just, let me just back, back of the envelope. Don't give me real numbers, just back of the envelope. So 20, let's say 20 K for the initial investment, right? Yeah. And like how many pounds a year am I getting out and what are the, what are the input costs? Like in other words, like how yeah. much does a pound of mushrooms cost to make? Um, in a, in a home unit, like you're going to be the block itself will cost you depending on where you live and shipping, you know, anywhere between 10 and $40. I can't really speak to, you know, people in sort of the nether regions of the, of the country. Um, and then you can charge at a farmer's market, right? If you, if you put it in a pint, um, you can charge up to, you know, 30, $35 a pound, uh, especially in a market, uh, where people don't see those mushrooms often, right? Right. And right. it grows, by the but, way, and, and, uh, up but to your, your forty inputs, pounds a week. And your your inputs, <coughs> excuse me, in terms of electricity for the lighting and whatnot, are, are minimal, right? Because it's LEDs. Yeah, yeah we. No? Uh, or is it a lot of money in electricity as well? It's just it's it. You know, I I wish I could 
you know, say is more comp. I mean, the, the system itself is complicated in how it regulates the temperature in an environment. Um, but the actual utility costs are very low. Mushrooms actually don't, they're not a very water intensive crop. Uh, and also, um, the light is, is simple LEDs. Uh, we're not using any complex. There's a little bit of UV in there that we use, uh, basically to promote, you know, healthy cap development and royal trumpets and blue oysters. But aside from that, um, they don't actually require full spectrum light like plants, which is most of the expense in running like those large indoor operations, uh, from a utility perspective. So, mm. Yeah. Pretty cheap. Can I, can I listen? I need someone to do this. Do you have an in with the New York Botanical Garden? Have you been to the New York Botanical Garden? Well, You're yeah. the only mushroom producer I've spoken to, so I need to tell you this. Okay, so you know how they have that tunnel yeah. in between the two sections of the... of the. You go to the Enid Howe Conservatory, you go, and to get from one wing to the other, you go underneath in a tunnel. Mushrooms. Grow mushrooms down there. They fire okay. off those you last two questions. It. You could get them to do it. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh... Let's go to Phoebe on uh, Derek Bodkin wants to know any tips for growing uh, Rao Ram. Uh, I can never get it to overwinter indoors in a container. I am in USDA hardiness zone 6B, <laughs> which is negative five Fahrenheit. Uh, I've had success creating like a, a greenhouse effect. So like putting like plastic over it, um, obviously keeping it within like a temperature range of like, I don't, I don't know, around like 75 degrees. Um, but yeah, keeping it, keep it like, keep it covered in plastic so that there's like it's there's humidity so it doesn't dry out from the heat and for anyone this is from uh stargan i recently got into the idea of making a mushroom martini what suggestions do you have for flavor extraction i'm finding the material i guess the mushrooms still have a lot of uh, unextracted flavor in them a blender seems to do a better job but then clarification is a challenge is there food grade chitinase so for those of you that don't know the the main structural item in uh mushrooms is chitin uh, or similar agent i have not sargon found a chitin agent but i mean do you guys uh i mean like uh do you guys have any suggestions for this i would say just use the uh you know cook the alcohol out of the uh mushrooms when you're done and use them for a culinary thing don't throw them away there's actually a guy who makes uh, mushroom spirits and sells them at farmers markets. He used to he, his farm was called Blue Oyster Cultivation. Uh, uh, I think I saw that. Yeah, and now he, yeah, he nice. almost. I'm not sure if he exclusively sells the spirits, but he definitely does that. In terms of making a martini, I mean, I would just rim it with mushroom salt. Would be the easiest way. But when I get super technical, maybe Phoebe. <laughs> I haven't tested that before making a mushroom liquor. I've made mushroom fish sauce. Or vegan fish yeah. sauce. Mm. Oh, how was that? Uh, how was the mushroom fish sauce? I think that it you have more success using like fishier oyster mushrooms, like yellow oysters or pink oysters. Um, and I was actually doing the experiment at MoFad. Um, oh wow! With John, did you write? Huh. Did you do one of those presentations? I, think I tasted it. I mean, there's actually if you want to make a mushroom drink, there in the cookbook is a uh, in mushrooms in the middle. There's a shiitake Bloody Mary recipe, not a martini, I'm sorry, but it calls for, uh, you know, 15 grams of dried shiitake. It's quite a bit. All right, Dave. Yeah. We used to, at Booker and Dax, we used to do a uh, cognac and shiitake called the Champion Ustino. That was uh, Nick Bennett's uh, Nick Bennett's drink. Uh, Actually, well, one it's suggestion been a really you guys quick, on drying and, the mushrooms. Yeah. Dehydrating the mushrooms concentrates the flavor. When yeah. you rehydrate them, that's how you get the most flavor out of the mushroom. Yeah, this is also true. Also, um, it's not a myth that <laughs> if you rehydrate them at a lower temperature rather than using heat, you'll get more of the umami-based yeah. compounds out of them. So, uh, you know, a lot of people try to skip it and go with hot water, and you can rehydrate a, a dried mushroom with hot water, but if you have the time, cold water rehydration and then bringing it up slowly and letting it sit because all of the cool reactions in mushrooms happen around 60 degrees Celsius and below. Just That's a, a separate... Uh, by the way, Adam, I was just playing around with the button mushroom. Obviously, no, I think go. everyone should go get fun, cool <laughs> mushrooms. Everyone should get cool mushrooms. Go, uh, go check out. Uh, go check out. Uh, I don't know, John. You you say all the things you should check out because I'm going to forget some stuff on the way out. <laughs> at small hold on Instagram. Come on, John. I'm, I'm saying it at small hold on Instagram and Phoebe. I'm going to mispronounce it, but at bebep.babykitchen. There we go. And I'll post them on the Patreon stuff. For all right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys.
right, thanks, thanks, guys. Cooking issues.